0: Today's episode is brought to you by Podcast Pipeline. We'll take care of all your podcast production so you can focus on your business. Visit us at podcastpipeline.com. Here's the question. Are you a business owner wanting to grow your business, but you're struggling with how your podcast can help? Well, welcome to the show that's about to change all that. I am your host, Cliff Dubenois, and in this podcast, we're taking the problems of podcasting head on. Entrepreneurs like you will share their strategies, tactics, and tips that they use every day with their podcast to make it an effective marketing and revenue tool in their toolkit. Welcome to Entrepreneurs on Podcasting. Hey there, world changers, and welcome back to another episode of Entrepreneurs on Podcasting. Now, today's guest—he has entrepreneurship in his blood. Growing up in Alaska, he watched his grandfather ran a successful dental practice, and then his father built a very successful law firm. He went off to college, and after that he was offered a job working with Charles Schwab, which cemented his passion for the world of finance. But he couldn't ignore the call of the entrepreneur forever, and after a handful of years with Charles Schwab, he turned in his resignation and he started Three Oaks Capital Management, a financial planning firm that's dedicated to helping their clients live their best lives. He's a loving husband, a caring father, avid skier, and a baseball junkie. Please welcome to the show the host of the Grow Money Business Podcast, Grant Bledsoe. Grant, how are you?
1: I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: Excellent. And thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today. What I would like to do is I'd kind of like to go back to the beginning of your, well, not the very beginning of your story, but the beginning of your story. (laughs) What drew you to the world of finance in the first place?
1: When I, was, when I was in college, I went to college in upstate New York. I, I, I played baseball in college. And when, when you do that, you're spending a ton of time on the field when I probably should have been spending a little bit of time figuring out what career I wanted to get myself into <laughs> through internships and that kind of stuff. So I didn't really have any direction in my undergrad. I, I got done after four years, came out with a BS in economics, and I stuck around and did kind of an accelerated MBA program over the subsequent 18 months. And then use that to, to figure out what the career trajectory was going to look like. So time-wise, that was 2006 and 2007. And at that point, everybody wanted to be an investment banker because you get to do really exciting stuff. You get to help businesses go public, arrange their financing. It, it, pay, it makes a lot of money doing that. And you know, as uh, an early 20s dude that didn't have a real clear idea of what he wanted to do in his life and his career. those kinds of things were very appealing. So I, I knew it was something like that I didn't really know uh, the intricacies of the financial system and what I was you know really wanted to get myself into. So I, I went through business school, applied for a bunch of jobs and I got a really cool offer from uh, Charles Schwab, not as an investment banker per se, more on the trading and portfolio management side of the industry. And so it was, uh, it was basically a Wall Street job. I, I worked as, as a trader on a trading desk, which is, if you've seen any of the Wall Street movies, it's a big room. You've got six computer screens in front of you and the phone was, phone's going off all the time. That was kind of the environment. We, we weren't cold calling thousands of unsuspecting consumers every week like some of the, uh, <laughs> like some of the trading floors used to do way back when that have been portrayed in the movies. But it was, very, it was a very cool place to get into the industry and start to cut my teeth.
0: So you're at Charles Schwab. You're doing well. You probably could have sat at Charles Schwab and just stuck it out till retirement time. But you decided after a handful of years to stop and start your own business, right? Why did you do that?
1: Yeah, that's so for me, you're you hit the nail on the head. I had a really great career there. I worked with awesome people on a great team that still are very dear friends of mine and got a couple of promotions. You know, I managed part of the trading desk that I was on and I had a very nice career trajectory at Schwab had I wanted to stick it out. But as you know, Charles Schwab and other big financial companies are, they're big, massive organizations and you have to deal with bureaucracy. There are a lot of cool things that we wanted to get into on great ideas that we had to develop. Uh, business and drive revenue on, on the trading desk that uh, management wouldn't or couldn't sign off on for a variety of reasons, which is frustrating. And in that environment, you're I, I live on the West Coast and for a Wall Street job that revolves around trading hours on the West Coast, I was getting up every morning at about 3.30 a.m. to get to work at 4.30 a.m., which really sucked. You're in bed at 7.30 or 8.00 p.m. to get enough sleep. The benefit of that is you get out at one p.m. on the nose when the market closes because your your workday is pretty much done at that point. But I, I just felt like I was doing the same thing every day, and I mm. could have stuck around and continued working up through the ranks. But I was I was just getting bored, and at that point in my career, I'd been there for seven years. I had I had developed a really solid understanding of how the industry is set up, what products and services are delivered to the investing public, and how. And my observation at, at the time was that there are all these financial professionals across the country. And today there are between 300 and 400,000 financial advisors or financial planners or wealth managers or whatever people want to call themselves. They're basically synonymous. And the idea is someone in that role is trying to help people, help their clients get to the best place financially for them. The vast majority of that pool of advisors is either incentivized to sell specific products. So they're technically an advisor, but really they're a salesman for an insurance product or mutual fund or something like that, which is not a very objective way to to operate, or they do not have a legal responsibility to act in their their client's best interests as a fiduciary, which is surprising but true, or some combination of the two. And, And this idea of helping clients in a way that's objective, and transparent, where your interests are aligned and conflicts of interest are not quite eliminated, but minimized as much as you possibly can. That's kind of a new and developing thing. And more and more advisors are working in that manner. But in 2014, when I was at Schwab, that was far less common. So I resigned from the job because I was getting a little bored. I wanted to help people more directly. And it seemed like if you're looking for help with your stuff, figuring out how to grow your wealth retire, use your resources in a way that are going to benefit you and your family and line up all the things that you want to do in your life. If you're looking for for help with that kind of stuff, you want someone who's educated, experienced, transparent, objective, and has a legal responsibility to act in your best interests before theirs. And so I resigned and started the firm to deliver those services in, in that manner.
0: So would you say that was, that would be one of your chief differentiators is that you are a fiduciary?
1: I would say not. No, not anymore. Because oh, since okay. then, right? So the, in, in 2014, that was a little less common. Now in 2022, it's a far more common model. And and I think if you're anybody who's looking for help from an advisor at all, you absolutely need a fiduciary. The good news is that there's a lot of them out there. So it, we, we it's not that we've that we don't operate as fiduciaries any longer. It's just that there's a lot more people out there doing it now. Right. I would say that our differentiator as, as a firm would be the way that we deliver our planning services and our target clientele. So we um, predominantly work with business owners in transition at, at, at this point. And I think what sets us apart is, you know, if, if you're a W-2 employee somewhere, you're probably saving for your own retirement in a 401k plan. You want that money to grow, you're trying to minimize taxes, and then at some point, you depart from work, you use that retirement savings to fund your living expenses for the rest of your life. And that's a big transition, right? Right. But when you're a business owner, it's a lot more complicated than that. Number one, you can set up the 401k plan however you want in a way that benefits both you and your employees. There's a lot of other arrows in your quiver as far as minimizing taxes along the way and setting up The business in in a manner that supports your income needs and your wealth goals long term and then that transition away from the business is business succession planning is a whole different animal because you probably have some equity in that business you might want to get something for whether it be selling it to partners or uh, your employees or managers or a third party and oftentimes, business owners need that, the value of their business in order to live a sustainable retirement thereafter. And so we, we have a lot of expertise in those items specifically, and I think that's, that's what sets us apart.
0: What made you decide to get into podcasting?
1: Yeah, t- two reasons. <clears throat> Number one, it seemed like a really great opportunity to communicate our philosophies and thoughts on planning and investing and business management in a longer form format. And there are a lot of, a lot of different ways that we can communicate. You can have a, a blog, you can have a YouTube channel. All of those are conducive to communicating those messages. But for me, I found that I was spending a lot of time talking to prospective clients who were not a good fit for the practice Either they just didn't check the boxes of people that we were trying to work with, predominantly business owners in transition, like I mentioned, or they were not on board with our planning philosophies or maybe the way that I communicate. And so, number one, this is a great opportunity to broadcast those messages out into the world. And I don't need to have, you know, a million downloads a month for this to be successful, but if every one of our prospective clients listens to a couple episodes before they come in to talk to us about becoming a client, that makes my life and job a heck of a lot easier. And so it's a great medium for just sharing a little bit about your services, the firm, just the way that you think about things and let people self-select in and self-select out before you have to spend any time on them. Second, Secondarily to that, it's a growing medium. And so, you know, there is marketing benefit to that. We do get a fair number of of downloads and people do find the firm because of the podcast. But the primary reason is it's just an ability for us to broadcast a message out to people who are considering becoming a client. And if there's something going on in the markets that I, I need to comment on, for example, we're down a fair amount on the year, interest rates are going up because of inflation. A lot of people have questions about their bond portfolios and what that means for them. Well, guess what? I can hit record, talk for an hour on that subject or have an expert come in and about, I would say, half of our clients or more listen to every podcast episode anyway. And so I don't have to deliver the same exact message over and over and over again to all of them individually. It's a more efficient way to communicate to our existing clients on top of of the marketing benefits.
0: Hey, everyone, we're going to take just a moment to thank today's sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Podcast Pipeline. Do you love editing your podcast episodes? Yeah, I didn't think so. You're an entrepreneur, not an audio engineer. The point being is that those hours that you're spending could be better spent on your business or with your family. That's why Podcast Pipeline offers full production podcast services. We take care of your podcast so you don't have to. And that means your time will be yours again to focus on what's really important. Visit us at podcastpipeline.com to learn more about how our services can help you. And now, back to the show. So I want to unpack a couple of things that you said there, because it was very interesting. The first is that it actually helps you with getting the right customers in the door. The second thing is with customer attention. And I, I love that. You know, rather than spending all your your time and effort just trying to produce shows and shove them out there, you're able to communicate to your client base using your podcast. Now, was that something that you kind of just stumbled across or is that by design?
1: I, I kind of sense that there would be some of that benefit. And to 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 put a frame around it, in my job it's a service business, right? It's a relationship business. And we have a financial plan for everybody. We have an investment strategy for everybody. It's long-term, it's consistent, and it's based in academic research, basically, and empirical data, right? It's not me sticking my finger in the wind and saying, well, I think the Russia situation in Ukraine is going to last another six months. Therefore, we're going to have these supply chain problems over here. And because of that, I think you need to buy this stock and sell that one. We don't do any of that. It's, it's long-term and consistent regardless of the, the current economic environment because the markets are very... Irrational, because they're based on human behavior, and humans are just irrational creatures. So the reason that that's relevant is that we have these plans for people to get them to the best destination for them based on what they're trying to do in their lives and their careers and their businesses. But when we run into issues in the economy and issues in the market like we are right now, it's very hard to remain consistent and stick to that plan when times are tough. So I spend a lot of my time and energy—all advisors do, not just me—when uh, markets are down, talking people through it and trying to use, you know, we can call it righteous tricks or you know, mind mind tricks, not because we're you know trying to sell somebody a product or something like that, but just use tools in our toolbox to get people to stay with the plan that that we'd mapped out initially, that we still have confidence in, that's going to work. So I, I sensed that me sending these messages about my thoughts on the market in a broadcast manner through a a podcast would make those individual meetings easier when the markets fall. And that's turned out to be true. We still have to spend a lot of time and energy walking people through it when times are tough, but it has been a little easier for people to stay consistent with their plan when they have the opportunity to hear me talk about the markets every
0: week. That's excellent and it's really great that you're using this as a as a tool to communicate to your existing client base because I think a lot of times uh, entrepreneurs who are starting up a podcast are thinking about it just in terms of getting new clients when they you know everybody knows the statistics it's it's always easier to keep a client and keep them doing business with them versus trying to get a new client so I think that's really clever and how you're doing it one question I would like to ask you is if for your podcast, especially when you were first starting out, uh, the one question I would like to ask you is what was one of your biggest struggles that you had?
1: I had a lot that I wanted to convey in the beginning. And, and so at this point, most of our episodes are guest interviews. And at the beginning, it was maybe 50-50 guest interviews and monologues, maybe even less than that to, to where more than 50% were monologues less than 50% were guest interviews. But the first couple episodes I had on, I was, I was really excited. I had a lot to say, and I was awful at interviewing. And I think the first three episodes were all guest interviews, as I recall. And you know, I tried my best to prepare, but I interrupted incessantly it's, it, it makes me cringe going back and, and watching and listening to those episodes at the beginning. That was really tough. It was more so just my inexperience. And it's a skill that you develop over time. And it gives me a much bigger respect for late night talk show hosts after uh, <laughs> realizing how how hard and, and challenging that is. So that was, that, that was really tough at the beginning. But it, it's a learning curve and you get over it. And I think everybody, it's a medium of communication, right? And everybody puts their own flavor and their own spin on it. Uh, You can have exclusively monologues. You can have exclusively interviews. There are so many things that you can do with this medium, but it takes a little while and a few repetitions to find your groove and and fall into it. But you're right that it's a great way to retain customers. And at the end of the day, I, I think that this format of you and me talking to each other is just a better ability to build relationships with strangers because... We have a chance to really open our kimonos and talk about you know anything, which is a lot harder to do in a blog post, and it's challenging to do on video sometimes too. So it's a, it's kind of a unique way to to build relationships.
0: Now, have you used your podcast for customer acquisition? We have
1: added a few clients directly through the, the podcast. For, for us, I, I think of it as a really nice addition to our overall marketing funnel. If you think of, of the, the age-old marketing funnel, you have somebody who hears about your business from a friend or, or a, a customer or something like that. They fall into the top of the funnel. So the first thing they probably do is check you out on, they check your website out right. or maybe social media, something like that. And they learn about your services and what you do. And if that's halfway interesting, they'll continue to move down that funnel. And maybe, you know, if you have a lead magnet on your website, they can exchange their email address for, you know, to get on your mailing list or download an ebook or something like that. Or maybe they can listen to the podcast directly on the website or elsewhere, and they continue to work down that funnel. I think of podcasting as a really good kind of medium funnel addition to our marketing mix, because you, you don't have to exchange any information. You don't have to give your name or phone number or email address to listen to a podcast episode. You can do it anonymously, but for our show, it's at least like a 45 minute investment in your time, but usually they're 45 to 60 minutes long. And yeah, you can tune out after the first few minutes, but it's not as, uh, it's, it's not as simple and convenient and, um, quick as just spending 30 seconds and checking out your website.
0: Certainly. When people come into your, you know, orbit, so to speak, or your top of funnel, like you were saying there, it's, it's really, they're really, they're engaging at the fringe of your content, right? They're probably consuming a couple episodes, but they're checking out the website. But the more that engagement entails, the further down the funnel that, that they go. And at some point in time, if you're advertising a freebie, on your podcast or join our email list and we'll give you the five tips to do this, then you've already had that opportunity to really nurture them and bring them down the funnel, which is great. How do you market your podcast?
1: So we have an email list that people can join on the website or or elsewhere. And we send each, so we publish weekly. And every Wednesday when we publish, we send an email out with the most recent episode. We, you know, you can find it anywhere. Like you like all podcasts these days, Apple and Spotify and, and all of those places, and beyond that, I don't do a whole lot. We, awesome. we record audio and video. We publish the videos on our website and on YouTube. They don't get a whole lot of views. The majority of the downloads and and listeners come directly from the audio channels on your phone or whatever. Um, But we don't do a whole lot of marketing beyond that it's like i said i think of it as a middle of funnel thing i'm not trying to drive people directly to the podcast i'm trying to drive them to the website first and then if they're happily interested then they can spend a little bit more time and hear me communicate and we can start to develop that relationship and and the relationship is it's my business is a service business and that relationship is paramount to anything that we might do with clients and if somebody finds our show interesting, and you want to spend a little time with it, you really feel like you know the person producing the podcast after a while.
0: I, I think you bring up a really good point here, and it's something that I, I want to make sure that I point out to our audience is the fact that it seems like a lot of the entrepreneurs that are having success with podcasting, really podcasting is pretty much their only Marketing tool out there. I mean, they might put some post on social media, like you said, send it out in an email list, which is something that I do. But for the most part, it's just the podcasting and it's the consistency of the episodes that are going out the door that are allowing people to find it and you know to be able to share it. And there's been a bunch of episodes, uh, like for instance, in episode uh, 31 with uh, Rachel Cook, where its podcasting is her only source, force of uh, form of marketing and because she understands the marketing that podcasting can do she's got an entire funnel with different levels of products going up her value ladder that she's successfully has built an awesome uh, business doing that to hear you say that i'm really not surprised because really at the end of the day the i in my heart of hearts this is my working theory is the people that listen to podcasts belong to a much higher demographic than people that don't? And and I say that not because I'm trying to to put anybody down, but if you go read the stats on people who listen to podcasts, you know, these are people that are all close to six-figure income earners. They are all, you know, management type management, upper management. They have very successful careers, very successful jobs. They've, you know, they, so anyways, if you go read that, all you have to do is just type in statistics for podcast listeners and you'll find all kinds of reports that are just like that. The the fact that you're just doing, you know, the podcasting and that's really about it is, is in line with what I'm hearing with, with everybody else. What I would like to do is I'd like to ask you from your standpoint, what's like one of the biggest successes that you've had with your podcast? I, I think I, th- I think one of the coolest things
1: that's happened as a direct result of the podcast is once it, it starts to grow and you get a little bit more notoriety. And, and, and to be clear, my, my show's not huge. You know, we get a few thousand downloads a month, and it's it's growing and it it, it meets our needs, and I'm really happy with it. But it doesn't have a, a terribly massive following at this point. But it opens the doors to talk to really cool people. <laughs> and when you have a show, now all of a sudden you have agencies reaching out to you all the time to put their guests on your show for marketing oh, yeah. purposes. And there are all these businesses popping up everywhere to get you on other shows as a guest and you pay thousands of dollars every time that you get placed somewhere. And a lot of that is is nonsense and people that would not be a good fit for the show. But it, it's also some of the inquiries not necessarily from agencies, but just generally people who want to come on the show as a guest have been awesome. I talked to a guy a couple of weeks ago who was a successful tech entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. He had this video advertising business that he sold to Blackstone for like $780 million or something. Now he's in real estate investing and he just has a really interesting perspective for the business owners that we work with this is which is who I'm trying to talk to through the podcast, and another guy who's he's he's an economist at Boston University. He is he's published like a dozen books on social security. He ran for president twice. He's testified in front of Congress a couple dozen times on social security. And I would never have ch- had the chance to talk to this guy. He's probably the smartest human being I've ever spoken with. Never would have had the chance to talk to him had it not been for the show. And so it opens these kind of cool doors that I didn't expect at the beginning. And there's no direct marketing benefit to that from the business, but there's a huge networking benefit that's nonetheless helpful.
0: And if you subscribe to the theory that your net worth is your network, then podcasting is a great tool for you to be strategic with regards to who you bring onto your show and who you wanna build your network with and, and everything else like that
1: that's right that's right and and you made you made a good point that podcast listeners in general are intelligent people i think and they if if you're someone who's listening to podcasts regularly you probably have a natural and sincere intellectual curiosity if you don't have that then you're probably not spending 30 minutes or more just listening to somebody talk and those are good people that, you know, are, are helpful to build relationships with and can be good customers.
0: Exactly. I agree with that. And you've already touched on this in your answer, but I still want to ask the question anyways, what has surprised you the most about having a podcast?
1: Yeah, like, like I was saying, I, I think the doors that it opens, it's, <clears throat> I, I knew intuitively that it would be a great way to communicate with our existing clients and prospective clients. That's been true. I knew it would be it would be a new skill that I would need to develop over time. That's been true. I sucked at it at the beginning, like I mentioned, and I'm getting better. I'm trying to sharpen my axe continually, and I'm a lot better today than I was at, on episode one, but I'm still trying to improve. But the networking benefits, I didn't fully appreciate at the beginning, and just the ability to... Meet new people. I do everything totally remote. It's not, there are a lot of podcasters out there that will only do episodes live where they're sitting across a table from someone, which I would agree is probably the best way to do it. It just limits the pool of people that you can ever speak with because most of us are not Joe Rogan who are flying in all their guests to Austin
0: for multiple
1: <laughs> episodes every week. But it, it just gives you the opportunity to, to network with really interesting people around the industry, regardless of what industry, industry you're in. Because if you have a show and you invite somebody to come on as a guest, that's kind of a flattering thing.
0: It is, definitely. One of the things that you brought up is the fact that how your first three episodes, the way that you described it, were not very good episodes. Right? You were completely inexperienced. You were struggling. You recognize that you've slowly been getting uh, better and better as your episodes go on. So, my question to you is why leave those episodes up there? Why not pull them down?
1: I, I think part of the benefit of podcasting is you, you just, t- it's a way to show your true self. And th- the reason that it's a successful medium is it enables organic conversation. And so much of our media that that we've been trained to consume over the years has to be truncated into these 30-second sound bites or three-minute segments or whatever because of the way that mass media is structured. Or you turn on the news and they have these screens with six so-called experts and everyone has a box, right? And they're all yelling over the the top of each other. What the hell is that? That's awful. And this, us talking right now is an ability to suss through complex topics in a more organized format and really get into nuance in a way that's not really existed before. And so I leave those three episodes up there because I have nothing to hide. I am, it makes me cringe if I were, I haven't listened to them in a very long time, but they're, they're awful, but I don't feel the need to take them down because it is what it is and I'm not I'm not terribly embarrassed about it. It's just a it's an accurate, you know, recording of the quality of the show at the beginning.
0: <laughs> I am a huge proponent of Gary Vaynerchuk and he always says document the journey. So, yeah. I would never advocate for anybody to take those episodes down. Right. I just asked the question because of your standpoint. You've mentioned a couple times about how those episodes make you cringe. My episodes make me cringe too, especially when I go back to when I first got into podcasting way back in the day. Holy sweet Moses, right? That's bad. But I still have them because it shows you know what? Anybody really can start doing a podcast no matter what your skill level is. You do not have to be Larry King. You don't have to be Oprah. You don't have to be phenomenal at interviewing before you can get started. The best thing to do is to get started and move forward. And so even even all these famous people that have done interviews and are really good at, you know, like you mentioned, Joe Rogan. Man, there was an episode one at one point where he didn't know what he was doing. He was brand new in front of the camera, whether it was a television show or whatever he was doing. And I guarantee you, he was nervous. He flubbed his words and everything about it. But in retrospect, the only reason why Joe Rogan became Joe Rogan is because he's stuck with it, right? His persistence kicked in. And he's gotten better and better and better with, with not only with his podcast and TV appearances and announcing MMA and God only knows what else he is into. So but
1: it's we have this reluctance as humans to be to show vulnerability. And yes. that's that's always something that I'm trying to get better at because yeah, it's endearing to other people, I think, when you're when you show your own vulnerability, but it's it also expresses being comfortable in your own skin and so i see it as i i want to get better at being comfortable with my own vulnerability and that leaving those episodes up there is contributes to that
0: yes indeed it shows that you're human is what it does you know and i i I love that answer what i would like to do is you know let's pretend that you and i are going to jump into a time capsule the way back machine and we're going to go visit grant in episode one, what would be one piece of advice that you'd go back and, and share with yourself that you've learned about podcasting?
1: I'd, I'd say chill out, take a deep breath. You don't need to get all the words in there at the very beginning. <laughs> and I, and uh, looking back on it now, I, I am surprised. I'm not embarrassed by the first couple of episodes at all, but I'm surprised at how amped up I was when we hit record. Because keep in mind, I've spent the last 15 years of my career in one-on-one settings with other people talking about their the intimacies of their finances. And I'm really good at asking open-ended questions in those settings because that's the best way to conduct a meeting with our clients. And so that's kind of a natural skill set that, that I have. And When we hit record, I still screwed it up. And so I think if I were to give myself any advice, it would be just take a deep breath, just be consistent with it. You're going to have, if you publish, keep publishing every week, consistency is important. You're going to have plenty of time to interject your thoughts and opinions in future episodes. So try not to interrupt so much.
0: Beautiful. absolutely love that. Grant, if somebody's listening to this episode right now and they want to check out your podcast, maybe listen to this guy that sold his business for 780 million dollars. What's the best way for what's the best way for them to find you and connect with you?
1: The podcast is called Grow Money Business with Grant Bledsoe and it's all the places where you get yours, Apple, Spotify and all those places. The business is called Three Oaks Wealth, threeoakswealth.com is our website. You can find uh, everything you need there as well.
0: Beautiful, and for our audience, as usual, we will have all those links in the show notes down below. Grant, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really do appreciate it, thank you.
1: My pleasure, thanks for having me, Cliff.
0: Hey everyone, I wanted to let you know that enrollment for our free five-day Start My Business podcast challenge is officially open. If you're an entrepreneur and you're thinking a podcast would be a great way to grow your business, but you're not sure how to start one, then this challenge is for you. This challenge is designed by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs. Now within the five-day challenge, you'll go from ground zero to having a fully operational podcast that you can use to start growing your business. I'll be sharing with you simple tips and tricks that took me years to learn that will prevent you from spending hours on one episode. Head over to startmybusinesspodcastchallenge.com or click on the link in the show notes down below. We'll see you there.